0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at EHN.org. I'm your host Brian Binkowski, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Happy summer to everyone out there. Hopefully, wherever you are, the air is somewhat clear. There is a dome of wildfire smoke kind of hovering over where I live, making me question my bike ride later, but. It does make me glad that we have people like the folks featured on this podcast thinking about and taking action on climate change. What a summer it has been in the Northern Hemisphere. Speaking of the program, the Agents of Change reached a milestone last week as we published the final essay from our second cohort. Dr. Jamaji Wanaji Enwaram published an essay entitled Putting People at the Center of Medicine, Research, and Policy. You can read that at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. You will definitely hear more from that second cohort of fellows, though there is more in the works, so don't worry. Okay, today I'm talking to Dr. Mizung Chu, a postdoctoral scientist in Dr. Ami Zoda's Arise EJ research team at GWU within the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health and a former Agents of Change fellow. Mizung talks about the intersection of housing and environmental health, her family's touching immigration story, and balancing being a new mom and a researcher. Enjoy. All right, now I am joined by Mizung Chu. Mizung, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's so good to see you. It's been over a year. I think our clothing patterns kind of have the same color <laughs> color palette as well.
0: For the listener, we have some purples going on. I believe, right?
1: <laughs> Tans, purples. Short sleeve because it's warm now.
0: Tans, purples, fans, and short sleeves. And where are you coming at us from? Somewhere in Massachusetts or?
1: Yes. So I live in the greater Boston area, specifically Sharon, Massachusetts. Also home of the Massachusetts tribe, the Massapogue Village
0: awesome very cool very good context and let's let's just rewind way back like i like to do here in the beginning and uh you of course are in the environmental health research field tell me about your upbringing and kind of how you got on this path of being interested in environmental health and environmental health research
1: yeah uh, thanks for asking that it's great to just um, sometimes sit back and reflect on how i got here um i think it's important for the work in general and for life to have moments of reflection I would say so. Um, my family and I uh, were from Vietnam, and we came to the US in 1992 when I was five years old. And we came here through the humanitarian operation, which the U- US had for um, former political prisoners of the Vietnam War. So, my father ser- served on the south side of Vietnam, and um, because our side lost, He was imprisoned for four years. He tried to escape, and then they put him in for another two years. So for a total of six years in these, quote-unquote, re-education camps. And um, so the HO operation um, allowed families um, of my dad, families like my dad, to come to the U.S. And we, you know, we didn't know... We were low income. We didn't have a lot of networks in the U.S. So we didn't know what to expect. And um, through I think Catholic Health Charities was the organization that sponsored us. When they asked us where to go, we're like, I don't know. So they put us in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts in the dead of winter, <laughs> February. And uh, it was great that they put us there because we quickly learned that we had cousins in Amherst, Massachusetts, moved in with them, like two families in two bedroom apartment. Um, and then went uh, moved back to Springfield for more jobs, and I think within Springfield it was a growing Springfield, uh, it was growing Vietnamese community in Springfield, and the, my first interaction I think with environmental health was thinking about the nail salon work that is very prevalent in Vietnamese communities um, across the U.S. Oftentimes, women of reproductive age um, are the highest numbers of workers in this population. So um, a few of my friends would mention you know, some concerns about chemical smells and take-home exposures, whether it's safe to uh, breastfeed your infant while you're working. Um, but also at the same time, it's not just um, environmental, but uh, occupational health. And um, and I knew that. I also see this as a source of pride. Uh, nail salons are a great um, um, way to build your entrepreneurship, uh, to build income and and job access for our community. So I think the, the tension between like, this is an economic resource and also potential environmental contaminants. I think that tension I always um, am cognizant of. Um, and um, so that's one aspect of environmental health. Um, another aspect is in, when I went to college at Smith college, I majored in neuroscience and one of our seminar that we had to do was a mock NIH proposal to investigate um, causal factors of Parkinson's disease. And somehow I became interested in thinking about like environmental factors and thinking about um, reproductive exposures. And in the literature, there was a lot of uh, papers linking early life pesticide exposure with later onset of Parkinson's disease. And that just blew my mind, right? That this life course perspective, because Parkinson's disease usually occur later in life, um, like in fifties and older, but this early life exposures um, prenatally and um, through adulthood, this dual exposure um, could could, uh, increase your risk of neurodegenerative diseases. So in that, and then the population that, that, we're most worried about is think about farm workers, right? And oftentimes are um, low income people of color. So there's a lot of like from the nail salon observations and observations of agricultural workers and their environmental health risks. Like there's a lot of environmental justice components that really like spoke to me, and um, from my own community and just trying to say like, hey, this is people need to work, but these are all these exposures conditions that. Are um, causing them ill health and affecting their generation and future generations. What can we do to stop it? I think that really propelled me into public health.
0: And did you know, maybe at Smith College or after? When did you know that there is a career here where you're trying to help folks like that, as opposed to because mm-hmm. a lot of us, when we're little kids anyway, we're thinking like, I need to be a doctor to help people or whatever that looks like. But when did you when did you realize that hey, this research thing is a is a career, a full time thing I can do.
1: Right. Um, So my father, actually, he he um, was a community health outreach worker for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And they hired him to do like TB tuberculosis outreach specifically to the Vietnamese uh, immigrant and refugee communities. And so that was my first introduction professionally to public health, um, where he did a lot of health education. He also pursued his own Ph.D., Thinking about cultural competency among healthcare providers, specifically for Vietnamese uh, community in um, Western Massachusetts. And so, from him, I learned a lot about public health practice. The field of public health research was so new to me, um, and obviously, like NIH and all the funding, um, like not not knowing anything about that. But when I was a senior in college. Um, I was applying for all types of scholarships to, get, to try to <laughs> get funding for college. And one of the scholarships that I fortunately was able to receive was the Gates Millennium Scholars Program. And one of our colleague in AOC, um, Brenna Trejo is also a Gates Scholar. And so I was fortunate enough to receive that grant. And um, so I was fully funded um, for, for my cost of attendance um, to go to undergraduate at Smith College. And after Smith, um, trying to think about careers, I was debating between medicine and public health. Um, I actually, like, tried to study for the MCAT, but then realized that, you know, like, financially it would be really difficult to go the medical school route, and I knew that I definitely wanted to do something in public health. So the Gates Scholarship actually provides graduate-level funding for um, fellows to, you um, pursue a master's of public health and then a PhD in public health, as well as other social sciences and other STEMs. And so thankfully, with the funding, uh, I applied to different MPH programs and got into Emory uh, School of Public Health. And really, once I got to Emory and being at Emory, close to CDC and just like the care center, so many public health agencies that that is at the integration of research and practice, it was like, it was awesome. (laughs) Like This is, you know, taking what um, taking what I observed from my dad and on the ground level and the local community, and then moving, moving all the way from Springfield, Mass, to Atlanta, Georgia, and just seeing people uh, professionally conduct research um, in areas that I was interested in, it just felt like I was home. It's just like I was just constantly like, oh, these collaborations, this collaborations. I actually connected with a few nail salon researchers. Um, Not specifically at Emory, but while I was at Emory, I kind of sent out emails to different folks. Um, There's a nail salon collaborative in California, just like sent my resume around and got connected with nail salon work with Dr. Lori Edwards, who was uh, finishing her dissertation at Hopkins. So that summer between my first and second year at Emory, I actually did an internship uh, with Dr. Lori Edwards to recruit nail salon workers in the greater Maryland, um, Maryland County and so, like, yeah. So it's great to see my, see my interests being able to explore my interests professionally and connect with others um, across the country.
0: So, I want to note that your your father was a basically a prisoner of war, and then came here and got his PhD. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's
0: you come from some like... resilient resilient <laughs> stock there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So I'm getting um, yeah thank you for saying that and uh, I'm getting emotional because uh, my father is a Manchu he he passed away in 2005 and I guess like I, he's such a strong model for me of of resilience and of leadership and of courage right and I think um, he was actually studying in college in Vietnam before you know before he um, had to go into the war to be like a politician or, or a civic leader um, in Vietnam. And then the war happened, and then we were on the losing side and he had to go to um, prison. So he really lost everything, like all his dreams, right? And, um, you know, and he really um, held on to his faith that got him through the six hard, hard years of re-education camp. But I think, he, I think he, when coming out, he never lost sight of doing something for his community. Um, and yeah, it was his dream to get his PhD and study. And he works with the Vietnamese community. So he was able to integrate his study with his work and really produce this body of literature um, of, of cultural competency um, for um, Vietnamese refugees in Western Mass. And yeah, it's like, he, you know, he's he's like the the threshold that I, sh- I strive to be, right? Um, and so, you know, um, <laughs> my... PhD graduation was last two, two Thursdays ago. And unfortunately I couldn't physically walk, but just kind of knowing that, Hey, I, you know, I got to this point that my dad got, it was so difficult for me. So imagine my dad who had to learn English and really learn everything coming to the U S was able to also achieve that. I think has always been such a role model for me uh, academically and personally.
0: That's really beautiful. I'm, I'm, very sorry for the loss, and I'm also very uh congratulations on the PhD. And I think Thank knowing you. your work that you've that you've done and continue to do that you're obviously honoring him in the most beautiful and kind of relevant way to what he had done. So you're uh, you're certainly carrying that on. and And that leads yeah. me into kind of after after college, pre PhD. I, I saw that you worked at the. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And before we get into kind of the, the PhD and the next step of research, can you tell me about, so when you work in government, I haven't talked to a lot of folks that do that on here, a lot of it's academia. How did that, what was that experience like and what did you take from it before you went to pursue your PhD?
1: Yes, so I, I had the privilege of working um, at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and the first two years was with the Occupational Health Surveillance Program as a Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists slash CDC um, Applied Epi Fellowship. So that was a fellowship I started right after graduating with my master's at Emory, and I uh, wanted to be placed uh, in Massachusetts. And it was wonderful. My mentors there, uh, Dr. Sang-Wu Tak, Dr. Letitia Davis, um, as well as Elise Pector, really taught me about research, translating research to action. And it wasn't what the main lesson that they taught me is that it's not enough to get the data, analyze the data, re- produce reports, but really, why, why are we collecting this information? Where is it going? And so it was collecting surveillance information about work-related injuries, and then using that information, whether it's like Sentinel or um, statewide surveillance, to then um, in- identify workplaces that were was causing harm to workers. And we had a sentinel surveillance in which Elise and other, um, other individuals like um, went into the work site and tried to identify and correct hazards. And we also shared our information to stakeholders like the Massachusetts Coalition of Occupational Health Surveillance, um, Mascosh, also the attorney, attorney General's Office and other partners that to kind of create the agenda of um, workers' health. And that the data that we collect is our role in contributing to, to this larger agenda, right? And so sometimes when I I have a lot of interest in do, doing different analysis, and I remember Dr. Davis is telling me, okay, so what? Like, so what that you found this? What are we gonna do about it? Like, for example, we found that teens living in um, sub state areas that had more. Um, English language limited proficiency, uh, lower socioeconomic status, we're also more likely to have higher rates of work-related injuries. And so she was like, what do you want to do with this? And so we worked with uh, Beatrice Vaughn, who leads the Young Workers pro- Project within DPH, um, to kind of do the information education outreach to teens in the area and engaging families there but also giving that information to the attorney general's office, right? To kind of identify errors in the state um, of highest risk. And so I, I really love that model of doing um, research and uh, doing research in context of action and of policy. And, and that's what I really carried with me into my PhD, um, doing something that was uh, action-oriented, um, embedded within um, what – the needs and, and social justice, right. Prioritizing those that had uh, most harm and trying to intervene on it. Um,
0: So what was to this point, can you point to an event, a decision or a moment that helped shape your identity?
1: uh, Yeah, there's, I know you asked this for other podcasts and I'm like, I'm trying to think of mine and there's so there's several, but, Just maybe in context of environmental health and community engagement, one of the biggest lessons I've learned was through um, being part of Dorchester Not For Sale, which is a coalition of residents in Dorchester and surrounding communities um, and local organizations like Asian American Resource Workshop, New England United for Justice, um, as well as like other partners like Right Right to the City. And the vision vision, or the goal is that we center our work on those most impacted. And so what does that mean, right? And I think for me to join Dorchester Not For Sale and observe um, the coalition, really holding that value and carrying it out in the practice was such a beautiful experience that I was able to be a part of. So one example is like, how do we center those most impacted? So in Dorchester, a lot of non-English speakers, um, a lot of uh, low-income families, a lot of renters. And so our meetings, our community meetings, we would have materials that we translated. We would have live interpretation. There's also childcare. It happened in the evening, so most people can attend. Um, And we try to like, uh, we had visuals, but also activities to like engage across everyone. And the meeting always started by acknowledging who's in the room. Like how many of you are renters? How long have you lived in Dorchester? Uh, who, how many of you are, are homeowners? Uh, so that's one example of how you can address the structure right, and center those most impacted. Um, another two example is also when we're meeting with the mayors or with developers or with stakeholders to, write, to try to argue and, Make the case like, hey, it's important to have more affordable housing, especially in Dorchester, where the majority of residents uh, make less than $50,000 compared to these expensive market rate condos that you're building. Um, in these meetings with stakeholders, we have um, residents from the neighborhood, especially neighborhoods where uh, that will be impacted by de- development, come and give st- share their stories and share testimonies and uh, and in different languages, um, and it's really beautiful to to hear that and to say like that's what we're going to lead with, right? Like they're they're the ones that need to be heard, and they're front and center in our agenda. I'm a data person. I love data. I love analyzing data, and so I was able to kind of use my love of data to, um, uh, with a few other folks, collect information about like the social demographic of the neighborhood. Um, as well as like households. And um, so we presented that data in these meetings after these testimonies and stories, right? So data is not just data points, but also these lived experiences, qualitative information. Um, and I think that's important. I think anything when we want to move anything, it's not like evidence is not just about number, number crunching, but it's about who, who's in the room, And are we letting them speak, right? Are they at the table? Are we creating resources and access for um, individuals and households most affected to be at the table? Um, Yeah, I could give one more example, but I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) Well, I love this idea. It's a very uh, journalistic way of storytelling where you lead with the people and then then we drop down into the numbers after we've established a story. And I really like thinking about that uh, going into the, the scientific and community organizing space yeah because um, I think it's really powerful I think you're right I think once you once you get lost in numbers it's it's really easy to forget that there are faces and families and children um, behind all these numbers
1: right exactly exactly
0: so I want to hear more about Dorchester because you did write about that um, your experience there for agents of change and but I wonder if we could if you can kind of set the scene for me a little bit because your research now looks at the intersection of housing and health environmental health, And I think most people, when we think of, we don't think of housing as the first thing we think of when it comes to environmental exposures or justice and health. So can you talk about this link and any aspects of it that most of us probably don't think of? Um, You know, why you think this is such an important intersection?
1: Um, So my background, like I told you, when I was at the State Health Department was in occupational health, um, although my training was in environmental and occupational at Emory. And so thinking about PhD programs, um, I really connected with Dr. Gary Ademkovich's work, who's at the Harvard School of Public Health and in the Department of Environmental Health. And he does a lot of work with low income and affordable housing and thinking about interventions to reduce exposure specifically for um, this population. And then the large center grant, the Crush grant that um, became part of my first dissertation paper was looking, measuring indoor air quality in the community of Chelsea. And they had a um, parallel initiative in Dorchester. And so because my background was in occupation health and I didn't know at the time when I entered too much about indoor air pollution and, um, and, and about like local communities of Dorchester and Chelsea, because I grew up in Springfield and um, didn't, yeah, I wasn't as integrated in the greater Boston neighborhood um, as much. And so Given that my research um, was in environmental health and air pollution and me living in Boston, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I need to know more about the issues. Like, do people care about <laughs> indoor air pollution? And is that even a priority for residents? And um, at the same time, after my first year of my PhD, I moved to Dorchester. Just like my um, husband and I moved to Dorchester we lived actually below my uh, siblings who owned the house at the time. And so I'm like, okay, I'm in Dorchester. And this um, is also where the study, the second part of the crush study will also take place. So let me see like, if this is even an issue in this neighborhood. Um, I also helped the this um, Dr. Adamkowitz to get funding to translate the study materials to Vietnamese because I knew that Vietnamese is a large immigrant population in Dorchester. And at that time, the study design was only um, available in English and Spanish. So luckily the Harvard Chan National Institute of Environmental Health was able to provide some funding to really translate all the materials into Vietnamese. And I volunteered to help with the recruitment of uh, approximately like 10 families, uh, Vietnamese families out of uh, about 75 families in Dorchester to have representation, right, in the research. Because I knew how important it is that if you're not in the research and not – if you're not included in the research, you're often ignored in the intervention. Um, And this is something that I could do, uh, you know, to translate and get funding for. And so through the recruitment work in Dorchester, and because I didn't have direct contacts in Dorchester yet, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to grocery stores, um, like Fuku, which is a large Vietnamese or you know um, East Asian Asian ethnic grocery store in Dorchester. I'm just gonna stand outside with permission from the owner. He allowed me to stand outside and just hand out flyers of the of the study. like okay, so I did that for a couple of weekends. I I got some folks to seem interested, be interested. I then went to the Mid-Autumn Festival at Town Hall, which is at the center of Dorchester, and just started talking to Vietnamese uh, families and residents. Um, and uh, yeah, so I got some names and phone numbers, people saying, yes, I'm happy to be part of your study. Just give me a call. And I think, and then um, in doing that, that's how I got connected to know the Dorchester community um, and to really appreciate the diversity and the vibrance of it. And uh, I met, um, she's a good friend of mine now, but artist Ngoc Tran Vu, who she was, she actually was uh, one of the leading members of Dorchester Not For Sale. So she's like, oh, you're doing this study on housing and air quality in Dorchester. Well, did you know about these market rate developments in the neighborhood? Uh, You know, we have community meetings, you're more than welcome to come. So I was like, okay. You know, like once kind of my coursework schedule allowed, I started attending these meetings. And. And the rest of history like i just loved how in these meetings um it wasn't top down it wasn't just like powerpoint presentations it's like there was food and music and there was joy you walked into the space and there was so much joy um in that space and there was, you know interpretation um okay and so uh, fast forwarding um So I think sitting down and listening to what uh, at these community meetings, what the issues were, it was about housing security and affordability. No one was talking about indoor air pollution um, yet, at least uh, in these meetings. And I was like, okay, well, what is the connection then between what I'm doing in this neighborhood and indoor air pollution and housing security? And um, because I knew the language, Vietnamese language, I was able to help. Recruit, uh, not recruit, but invite and outreach to Vietnamese um, limited English speaking residents in Dorchester to invite them to come to these community meetings, hoping to like translate some of the flyers. Um, and so, in some of the outreach to the Vietnamese elders, I learn about the issues, right? About housing to say, you know, um, one resident shared that there was like holes in our kitchen and the heating system was broken and the landlord. Who is Vietnamese, um, just um, didn't, was unresponsive to fixing this. And, you know, um, and then we were able to, we, which is Asian American Resource Workshop, and the um, Greater Boston Legal, um, GBLS, uh, Legal Aid, Asian Outreach Unit, was able to connect with her and get her some legal support to um, work. With the landlord and um, to try to address some of these issues, and they were able to get her reassigned to um, into an affordable housing unit um, in a different part of the neighborhood. But yeah, just hearing these stories about like um, these residents that are facing housing quality issues, right? Issues that could uh, like heating issues and similar veins of like indoor air pollution, these environmental hazards and it's because of just like living in this like high market rate environment right the there's what is the incentive for a landlord to make changes to their home if they're if you know if this person doesn't want to stay here well i can rent it to someone else at at a higher rent so what is the incentive for a landlord to really be good actors and some people are good actors and there are really great homeowners and landlords out there and then there's like really bad, terrible, some words. And so if we just go in and try to address water quality issues indoor air pollution without thinking about affordability and access and how can people stay in their home and not thinking about these like larger economic um, structures that really drive um, environmental risk factors at the individual and household level, then how, like, what impact are we doing as environmental health scientists? And so... Yeah, I think I personally wanted to know more what the connection was. I saw it playing out. saw it in neighborhoods that are being gentrified, that there's, like, less incentive. Um, and also, like, when I looked more into this, I, you know, I realized that a lot of um, neighborhoods that are being gentrified, um, yeah, there's a lot of displacement to, to other neighborhoods. Um, some Dorchester not-for-sale residents, that come to our meetings are some of them um, said they they live in Brockton and have to commute uh, into Boston. So it's like over an hour and a half commute in public transportation because the housing in Boston and Dorchester have become so expensive to live in. Um, And so I think we really need to think about these interconnections between um, these socioeconomic factors of, of housing supply and housing access and policies to promote and sustain affordable housing uh, and its impact on environmental risk factors in the home, and which is like what I'm in a way doing at the national level um, at my postdoc right now with Dr. Ami Zoto at the George Washington University.
0: That, you know, so you did write about these issues for us, and I don't know, I mean, Part of my question is: Have you had you written for a lay audience before and communicated your research? And either way, what was the experience like working uh, at Agents of Change and writing about your research for a, kind of a broad audience and trying to make this, um, you know, less sciency and and really put a narrative spin on it, like you did?
1: Right. Yeah. To be honest, Brian, I I was nervous. I was nervous to. Uh put my opinions out there. And, you know, I was honored to be part of this cohort and thank you to you, Brian and Dr. Amizota for making it possible for us to be the first, you know, pilot cohort. Um, yeah. Trying to figure out what issue I wanted to write about. It, I also saw it as an opportunity to get to know, m- m- to connect the different parts of my life, right. The academic research, with what I care about, care about in the community and agents of change and writing this blog was a way to try to make that connection and forced me to see like, where's the connection, where are the gaps? And at the end thinking about what are the recommendations that I want to make for the field. And so I think that was a um, important challenge and era of growth for me. And my first draft, I don't know if you remember, but (laughs) It was so like data heavy. It was just like statistics of like homelessness and um and and why in the uh, housing supply and like you know just trying to cite a lot of reasons why uh, we need more affordable housing. Uh, and then the comment I received from my other fellows was that you know I'm missing my voice in this. The kind of the heart of the matter. What what is why like why should someone care beyond beyond the data. And so that just forced me to sit back and think about, like, why did I get involved in Dorchester not for a sale? And just, like, just, the you know, and the power of community, right, which is – so I wanted to reflect that in the blog. Um, yeah, and it's been – I think the response uh, have been really positive. I ran it by a few other folks who say, okay, does this it, does it seem, uh, you know, seem okay how I'm writing my opinions and giving the green light. Um, yeah, the response has been really positive And I think it's led to, you know, it's really connected to my current postdoc. Um, it's really allowed me to be able to articulate things that I cared about in a cohesive way, why housing security is important for environmental justice, um, and how we need to really move beyond thinking about just agents like environmental toxins and agents and contextualize of like, yeah, let's try to intervene and reduce exposure, but, but also let's think about housing, um, affordability, housing access. And for one to afford housing, you just have to think about jobs, right? Providing jobs that pay at a fair wage um, for the geographic area, livable income, um, thinking about uh, transportation to work. So all these factors are connected. And I think, at the resident level that's what people care about like yeah
0: and so what are you working on now in your postdoc what's the what's the direction kind of what, what do you have cooking
1: yes yeah, so i'm currently in a postdoc with dr Ami zoda at the george washington university um she uh, she and the co-eyes on this uh, hud funded grant healthy homes grant is dr gary my dissertation advisor as well as Dr. Andrew Fennelline, um from Penn State University, and the the HUD funding grant is looking at the impact of federal housing assistance on environmental exposures. And uh, Dr. Faneline created a really novel way of um, identifying um, HUD recipients as well as future HUD recipients as a in the weight creating like a pseudo waitlist population. So we're gonna compare. Um, Households that have and don't have and in the future will get housing assistance and connecting it with um, biomarker data of environmental toxicants like lead, cadmium, um, other metals, as well as phthalates and um, volatile organic compounds and biomarkers of secondhand smoke to make the case whether affordable housing programs does uh, impact for better or for worse uh, environmental exposures. I think the novel aspect is linking these large national data sets from NHANES to the American Housing Survey to like decennial census and American Community Survey with HUD administrative files. And um, it's that a lot of this data is restricted for for obvious reasons, uh, disclosure reasons. But um, I think this research can really first uh, make the case. I hope, you know, I hope to see that we... um, see a beneficial effect of affordable housing programs on improved environmental and housing conditions uh, to make the case that we need more affordable housing supply. Or if it shows um, the opposite, then it'll tell us that, you know, we have more work to do, that within um, these housing conditions, there possibly need to be more improvements made. Um, What areas of improvements can we intervene on to help? those living in affordable housing conditions. So I think it, it has a lot of policy implications and practical implications nationally. Um, yeah, and I'm still with Dorchester Not For Sale. Um, I'm still in the greater Boston, um, great, local greater Boston community. So I'm kind of interested in the national and the local level, how, you know, housing, about housing justice work.
0: Excellent. And I wanted to talk to you. So, you know, switching gears a little bit here in, in recent months, there's been some both horrific um, incidents against the Asian American community and uh, and just, you know, blatant racism. And and I think society has become more aware of the model minority myth. You know, I know I have. It wasn't something I was I was that in tune to. So I wonder if you can talk about that um, and whether this is manifested in your career, personal life, and if so, what kind of tension or problems it's created?
1: Yeah. So I've like, since I was young, I've heard of the model minority myth and the stereotype that Asians are um, higher academically uh, achieving um, and other socioeconomic indicators. But more recently, I, um, I learned that it's been used as a political wedge um, between Asian American groups and other racial ethnic groups. And now, you know, and even being Asian myself, I had to teach myself and go out and learn that. Um, And that, and it made sense, right? It like suddenly made sense of like, like, First is like living as an Asian American woman, I I understand there's um, a lot of benefits and privilege to that um, compared to being um, of another race. Um, So I acknowledge that privilege and there's always been a tension of like, where does Asian American communities fit politically um, with other groups and just seeing within my own Vietnamese community and my family we were not as political growing up um, and experiences that I've had in which, you know, I was bullied in middle school and my mom would just say, you know, just ignore it. Um, yeah, just ignore it. You know, maybe they're like jealous of you for some reason. Um, and I guess I was told not to, to fight back and take a stance and kind of understand what's happening. And also when I was at Smith College, I was co-president of the Vietnamese American uh, Student Association. And I was unsatisfied by the type of activities that we were known to engage in, right? That a lot of the our ethnic identity was attached to like food and dances and performances and there wasn't a lot of political organizing around uh like uh, um you know like race issues uh politics um civic engagement and so i i sensed this there's a lot of like sense of discomfort and feeling like i don't know like this doesn't feel right growing up but not until recently um Doc, uh, Dr. Jean Wu at Tufts University gave a really great explanation of how the model minority myth has been used as a wedge, right, politically um, against other racial groups um, to say, like, hey, you know, look at Asian Americans. They, they're excelling well in education sector. Um, they're you know, hard workers. They put their head down, you know. Why can't you all, like, uh, Black, Latinx, and other communities be like them? And this is coming from, and thinking about, like, from, uh, like, you know, that um, myth really, all it does is just support a white supremacist culture, right? To, To say, oh, don't focus on the wrongs of white supremacy. Focus on this infighting. That you have between Asians and Blacks and Latinx and other communities of color, right? Like focus on on each other and the, um, and not, you know, not get together and fight against this um, white systems and white institutions. And you know, it's a way of like distracting and dis, um, you know distracting us from our shared power and fighting um, you know institutional racism. And so I think I'm really glad that it's being talked about more. I'm still going through my, like myself and family members and folks I know, just like understanding how that myth has played out, how we have benefited from it, but how we're being harmed from it as well, Um, especially in. This moment, we need a lot of cross-racial solidarity of the Black Lives Matter movement with indigenous communities to say, like, all these inequalities that have happened from uh, murders and police brutality to um, higher COVID, higher COVID rates in Black and brown communities um, to Asian businesses being targeted and harmed and um, Asian Americans uh, being directly targeted. Like, th- these are all injustices that come from a neglect, right, of uh, government institutions um, to build capacity and to build resources um, in these communities. And so it's, I don't know, I I feel frustrated. Um, First, I'm just like that. I'm just kind of connecting the dots now. But acknowledging that my, you know, my lack of understanding now is intentional, right? The, the designer of the model minority myth wants it that, so that you, know, you don't think that it's um, a political agenda, right? And so, yeah. And um, I think, so other two points is that with the model minority, it's, it really um, obscure the heterogeneity in the Asian American uh, populations where we know that um, it's a spectrum, right? Like certain um, Asian groups are lower income or more vulnerable to um, housing injustices, um, to job access. Like for example, Vietnamese and the Cambodian community have higher rates of um, limited English proficiency compared to other Asian communities that have been in the US longer. And it really, the model minority myth kind of obscures the fact that um, groups have, are in the U.S. for different reasons, right? Whether it's um, fleeing war, which a lot of Cambodian refugees and um, Sudanese and uh, Vietnamese have uh, that went through versus coming to the U.S. for work or for education or for family, right? So it's, I think that myth really hides the need for um Understanding that that the Asian Americans and the intersectional identities, right, across ethnicity, class, um, gender identity, um, that there are different groups with different needs. And to group us all together, it really hurts us, right? And in a lot of public health data, unfortunately, Asian Americans are grouped together, including with Pacific Islanders, are like all grouped together in this one category and, you know, the rationale is like, oh, we don't have enough samples, but we need to, you know, get more funding to collect primary research and primary data in in specific um, Asian ethnic communities. So then we could be like, hey, look at the data. There's so much variability. No, the model minority myth is false, politically false, but also operationally on the ground. Like we see that um, certain groups are worse performing. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, I think that's um, and I, if I could just mention one thing too, it's like my, I think mental health, um, thinking about mental health and issues of like depression anxiety within our communities the I think the model, first I think the model minority myth makes us think that you know, um, maybe we can't complain because you know, we're, we have these advantages socioeconomically, we're doing well and just put our heads down and work hard and it'll, it'll all be okay but i know that like within my own family it's it's difficult to talk about loss like the loss of my dad you know that's a huge like trauma to a family and i don't ever remember having like a professional mental health person or caseworker reach out to her family to talk about how that might impact her family um or thinking about why my mom holds on to things in our house instead of getting rid of things and contextualizing like, okay, she might be doing that is because we had to leave Vietnam with very little possessions and all the possessions that we have is related to like, this is what we have. This is our identity of living in the US. And so I think, yeah, I think um, the model minority myth really takes away important um, need uh, within our own communities, within our own families to talk about hurt and need for healing and um, violence violence that have happened to our own community, right? Because basically the myth is like, oh, you shouldn't complain. You're doing well. Other groups are doing worse than you. Um, So just, like, put your head down, work hard. And really that, like, that hurts our community more, and so I'm glad there's more consciousness within myself and within our community and across, um, across communities to really identify um, like the, you know, the institutional racism that have perpetuated this and that have um, used this as a wedge um, for us to really like, get together because there's power in all of us. Um, there's a lot to change the, the systems.
0: I, well, I really appreciate uh, such a thoughtful and re- reflective um, answer. and I know it's not easy to to think about and work through these things on the spot and and really, you know the the notion of the model minority myth was relatively new to me as well. Um, so to kind of hear a very personal spin on it is is really helpful to put it in context. So I appreciate that. Um, and we have to end on some positive notes, some high <laughs> notes here. So I have two more questions for you. And one is that I know you are a new mother because you shared a beautiful photo of your new baby. And I just wanted, first of all, congratulations. That is a major, major life step. But um, thank you. I wanted to ask you how this um, how this has affected your work. You know, as as somebody who is obviously very busy with research and advocacy and, and thinking about these big issues and now you have a little tiny human to take care of. Um how is the support? How is the academia and life balance? How is that going for you?
1: Yeah. Oh man, I love being a mom. I know it's <laughs> so hard and um you don't get a lot of sleep. But my husband and I were just like, you know, some days I'm just like staring at her and like even little things like, oh she's like smiling. We're just like, yay, so excited. So I think um yeah, I think the main yeah, just like this bundle of love and joy and uh, my husband was saying the other day like oh, I you know, I have to stop and think like this creature has a soul and I need to like not just take care of her basic needs but really like connect with her soul. And so her name is Sophia, Sophia Lynn. Um and so um I you know, I was able to take 3 months off for parental leave and my husband took 8 weeks off and we're really thankful for that time to get to know her. Um, as far as like, yeah, I've had a lot of support uh, professionally and personally and through family um, to be able to make time and space to raise a, a child. And so um, Dr. Ami Zoda has been really supportive of me taking time off. And, and she also, yeah, you know, she sent um, Sophia a box of um, clothes from her own daughter when she was younger. Um, and with the with the car that said, you know, it's going to be hard. Like, yeah, you, yeah, it's going to be hard. You're Sometimes you're going to feel like you're not meeting expectations of a postdoc or expectations of a mom. And it's going to take a while to adjust. And I was like, oh, plenty of time. I'm taking three months off. So I should just when I come back, I'll just get right back into things. And, you know, it has taken me this. I'm a month um, back at work. And I think Physically, I'm back at work, but, like, mentally, it's hard to shift back. And um, But I think being a mom helps you filter down to think about what's important in life and and the values in life. And is my work connected to my values, right? Is the – where do do I, you know, with limited time now, it's, like, where do I want to focus my energies? And so it's – as far as, like, Sophia has been – Such a wonderful (laughs) addition to our family. Um, And I've learned so much. I'm such a stronger person from the women in my life that have educated me, especially women of color that have believed in me. Um, And I'm excited to try to be that for Sophia. Like this is an opportunity and obviously there's going to be highs and lows, but, you know, I think she, um, she reminds me that like, I need to be, that my, you know, being a mom is important. Um, that's an additional identity. Being a researcher is important. And that um, there has to be work-life balance. But the more that you can integrate it together, um, the better. So, and my husband has been a rock star. Awesome. <laughs> Supporting, Yeah, obviously, uh, kudos uh, to him and our families and the grandparents that have babysitted her um, to really make it possible um, and allow me to do both, right? Career and um, family.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm really happy to hear you have the support. And I, knowing uh, people who both live near family that have babies and those that don't, I, the the latter, uh, it always, it, it has to be so much more difficult when you don't have that family support system around. Um, so I'm glad yeah. it sounds like you have at least some of that in place to help you out. And um, yes, yeah, so, so if you've ever listened to the podcast, you know, I like to end on the, the book question, so what right. is the last book you read for fun? It sounds like you have plenty of free time, you know, between <laughs> work and the baby. You're just reading books, so.
1: Yeah, so, you know, this is one of the questions I was afraid of, because I'm like, oh my gosh, for fun, <laughs> like, for fun part is the hard part. I, I've been reading a lot of baby books, <laughs> but I think the book that I started, I'm still finishing, is The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, it won a Pulitzer Prize. And he's an amazing uh, person and faculty um, in California and uh, University of South uh, Southern California. But yeah, that book really, like it's, I was reading an interview that he written how the connection between the sympathizer and the Invisible Man. And Invisible Man is also another book I love by Ralph. Um, Ellison, and really thinking about, like, double consciousness, right, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but the main, the narrator, the main um, character kind of lives a duality, um, duality in his role, like, politically and also geographically, like, being both, like, um, in the U.S. Um, post-Vietnam War um, yeah, it's a lot of it. It's humorous because it's like, oh my gosh, I see this playing out in day to day life of like double conscious of like how he sees himself, but how, he sees how other people view him. And um, yeah, I would highly, highly recommend it. Uh, I'm I'm probably like 100 pages or 50 pages, yeah, away from the end, so I don't know what happens at the end, but looking forward to finishing it.
0: Excellent. Well, Mizong, this has been such a great conversation. It is so wonderful to see you. And thanks for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Looking forward to seeing you more.
0: That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Aaron Gomez, and Hannah Seo. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with former Agents of Change fellow Denise Martinez, a PhD candidate in the graduate group in ecology at the University of California, Davis, and a health policy research scholar with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Have a great week, folks.